so glad that you are here. I'm Pastor Paul, lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarne. Before we open God's Word this morning, let me follow up with one thing that Aaron mentioned in the announcements. We are having this Wednesday, of course, our annual family meeting. And we call it family meeting, not congregational meeting, because we know that congregational meeting, uh, some of you guys get PTSD when you hear that, right? Uh, there's some sort of traumatic memory you need therapy for, something growing up. I, I mean, I remember my very first congregational meeting. This is no exaggeration. I think I was in either kindergarten or first grade uh, at a church that shall remain nameless, but it was somewhere in East Tennessee. And I remember in the middle of everything, something, some guy stood up, started yelling. Uh, it was about money, of course and stormed out and that's a lot of us has been our experience right with these sort of things and we decidedly um, that that is not what our family meetings are about we do talk about money of course we talk about budgets but fundamentally there are there are time where we first reflect on god's goodness where has he been this past year what evidences of grace can we celebrate as a church and then where do we believe he's leading us forward? What are our priorities? Uh, it's an important time to give, to give updates and talk about different things happening in the life of the church. We introduce our officers, elders for the coming year. We're even going to make some, some staffing update announcements. So, for example, back in January, I had mentioned that we were in the process of looking for a full-time pastoral resident. And um, we have an update on that. And you may say, what is it? No, no. You must come Wednesday night, all right, 6.30, dessert will be provided. We would love to have you. But of course, this morning, we are in Matthew chapter 6, so open your Bibles there. You know, I think it's very appropriate, the text that we're looking at this morning. It's actually going to be the text we're looking at for the next three weeks as we think about committing our way and our church family to the Lord, if you think about what is the maybe the most well-known passage in all of Scripture, I mean, we can point to verses a lot of people know, John 3.16, for example, but if you were to pick one passage that is maybe the most familiar to the most people, both Christian and non-Christian, something that's recited in churches across the globe each and every Sunday, of course, I would be talking about the Lord's Prayer. And we are going to finally, once and for all, resolve the, the, the issue of is it debts or is it trespasses? That's where we're, that's where we're mainly going to be focusing. No. Well, we will talk about that. That, that, that is important. But we're going to be camping out in this um, amazing text for the next three weeks. So I'm going to read the whole thing for us. If you can, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word this morning, we're going to be in verses 7 through 15. And of course, Jesus is speaking, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father 
forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as a weak, needy people who I think would freely confess, Lord, we struggle with prayer. We struggle to pray as we ought. We struggle to prioritize communion and time with you. Lord, we're, we're a busy people, which simply means we oftentimes prioritize other things than being in communion with you. So, Lord, we, we say that at, here at the outset. We really need your grace. We really need your mercy. We really need your help. And I pray, Father, that over this next month, as we're digging into the most important prayer in all of the Bible, that you would do a work of grace in this area in our lives, that we would be a people who are resolved to pray, to be with you, to commune with you, to walk with you. Lord, that's our sincerest, our heart's desire this morning. We ask it in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. You take your seats, please. We read the whole prayer, but we're actually going to be camping out just in those first two verses. And two verses deserve two points, and here they are. We're first of all going to talk about the place of prayer, and secondly, the parameters of prayer, sort of the ground rules that Jesus lays out for us. So, so let's start with the place of prayer, and I want to say some things in, in general about, about this issue. When I talk about the place of prayer, this is sort of a double entendre, as you, as you will see. First, I want you to notice here the geographical, the physical place that the Lord's Prayer falls into the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, I, I want you to I want to talk for a minute about where it's where we find the Lord's Prayer, how it's structured in relationship to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And in doing so, I want, to, I, want to, I want to talk just for a minute about an aspect of biblical interpretation that I think will be helpful for us. Now, what we have in the Gospels are nothing less than biographies. Now, when we think about biography, you may be thinking about that set of six or eight books you want to read through in the summer. And let me just tell you, you're not going to make it through your stack. I just want to tell you, right? Don't, don't, be, don't be too hard on yourself. But I, I do love biographies. A non, number of you love biographies, whether it's on Spurgeon or Churchill or Eisenhower or another historical figure. But when we read a biography, we come expecting a fully comprehensive account, Right? We, we, we don't want to read just about a portion of someone's life. We don't, want, we don't want to read about Churchill and get to the part where he takes over leadership of, uh, you know, the British Empire during the height of World War II and then the book ends. That, that, that does us no good, right? That's not why we are reading it. But we need to understand that what we have in the Gospels are not comprehensive biographies. In other words, they're not exhaustive. They don't tell us everything they could tell us about what Jesus did. John makes this point painfully clear when he says, look, if you think this is a long gospel, what I could tell you things that Jesus did that would fill volumes and books. Rather, each gospel writer chose certain things from the life of Jesus, those things they thought were most important for us to know. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, 
Matthew, for example, wrote his gospel. And he, he didn't just choose at random certain events. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Matthew wrote through his own background, through his personality, through his exposure, through his eyewitness accounts for a specific pastoral purpose. And remember, we said at the very beginning, what Matthew was aiming to do is to show us that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all, all Old Testament prophecy. He is the Messiah King. So, so what is happening here? As Matthew gives us the Sermon on the Mount, he probably, I mean, in actuality, he probably doesn't give us every single word, but the way he orders the sermon communicates something very, very important about prayer. And I just want to make this, make this, this comment. When you, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, and you look at its structure, its content, its word count, its organization, what you are going to find is that at the very center of the sermon is this section on the spiritual disciplines. And we introduced that last week, talking about uh, giving or generosity of prayer, of fasting. This is the center of the sermon, and for good reason. Because Jesus has been talking to us about what it means to be wholehearted believers, to, to pursue righteousness, not a righteousness that secures our salvation, but a righteousness that flows out of a transformed heart, that the wholehearted person is not the bifurcated person. The wholehearted person is the one who is same on the inside and the outside. And Jesus is giving us these pathways, these spiritual disciplines for us to pursue wholeheartedness, wholehearted righteousness. Now, when you look at this central passage on the disciplines, you will notice that this, these, these three disciplines also have a center. And the center of this section is the center on prayer. And in fact, you will notice that even in this teaching on prayer, there is a central part to that central part. And it's called the Lord's Prayer. So, so think about it. You, you remember those Russian dolls? Like you have one big doll, you open it up, and it take the next one out, and there's a little, there's a little doll in e within each doll. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you do Christmas gifts this way. It may a plague be upon your soul. Okay? It's not right. It's not fair. One thing inside the other. So what do we have here? The Lord's Prayer is the center of the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount. It's as if... Matthew's saying, and this is where the double entendre comes in, right? When we talk about the place of the sermon, of the place of prayer, it's at the center of the sermon, right? But Matthew's point, see, and any Jew would have gotten this. See, see, ritualistic prayers were a part of Jewish worship, and they would have understood this order and structure well. Here's what Matthew's saying. Not only is prayer the geographical center of the sermon, but prayer must be at the spiritual center of your life. That's, it couldn't be any more obvious, right? We've read the Sermon on the Mount so many times, we, we miss these things, right? But Matthew's saying prayer is so important, it's so vital, it's so fundamental to what it means to be in relationship to God that in this whole section on righteousness and wholeheartedness, this is at the center of the center of the center. See, and this should give us a cue about what the Sermon on the Mount is primarily about. 
you know, Sermon on the Mount is one of those well-known discourses that even people who aren't Christians or aren't in the church can quote various parts of, right? And it can be seen as sort of a best practices for, for living a wise life. Or if everyone followed the Sermon on the Mount, the world would be a better place. And there, there's obviously certain truths to that. But make no mistake, folks, the heart of the sermon is a call to communion with God. And if we miss that, we miss the whole point. Jesus is going to make this very clear to us at the end of the sermon when he, when he says, on that day, people are going to say, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do that? And what will he say? Depart from me, I never what? Knew you. Prayer is for the person who knows the living God. And so when we think about righteousness, wholeheartedness, and, and hopefully, by God's grace, as we're studying this, uh, this sermon together, God's pricked your heart. God's begun to, to reveal things in your life, places where you're, you've been sort of dual-minded or bifurcated, right, into spiritual, into secular, where, where there's certain areas of your life that have sort of gone off limits from the Spirit of God. And, and if that's the case, and, and I believe if you're a Christian and the Spirit lives within you as God shows you those things and convicts your heart, you want to change. You have a holy discontent. You want to be different. And what Jesus is saying, you just don't swerve into wholeheartedness. It only happens by aligning yourselves with God through prayer. Now, there's much more that we're going to say about this. But let me, um, let's start with doing some spiritual inventory. So Jesus is in this passage is, is, is always pointing us to examine our hearts before God in the private place. So if your life was a book, if your life was represented on, uh, in Matthew 5 through 7 in a book, so to speak, what would be the center of your life? Not what other people would think is the center of your life. But if you were to think about your life in terms of your hobbies and your money and your relationships and marriage and children and family and work and all of those things, between you and God, how would prayer be represented in your life? What is the place of prayer in your life? Is, is it central? Is it at the very center? Is it, is it the pivot point, the fulcrum upon which everything else pivots? Or is it peripheral? tangential, accidental. Here's a good way to think about this as you're doing some of this self-inventory. And remember, I, I, I say this as, as your brother in Christ. I said, told you last week, I don't come to this study on prayer from a point of personal strength. I, I, I come at this, as many of you, as someone who is in desperate need to be reminded of how much I just need Jesus. But here's a way to think about this. About 30 years ago, when the interwebs first burst onto the scene, I remember that first time, and you may remember that first time, where you, do you remember when you actually entered a website address and you viewed your first website? Okay, For, for me, um, being far from home, it was a newspaper in Tennessee. 
And, and, and as I typed it in, and as the pictures took 35 minutes to load, remember that? And as they're coming in, I'm just like, what am I seeing? Oh my, like this is like new. This is a novelty. I'm seeing pictures from other places and stories, and, and it was a novelty, right? And, that, and that's what websites were. They were an absolute novelty. They were like the unicorn, the freak of nature. It's like, man, if, 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 if the organization or company you're with has a website, whoo, you know, that's, that's big time. You know, after five or ten years, more people begin to have websites. And, and you begin to realize, you know, it's not so much a novelty, novelty anymore, but it is a nicety, right? It's a nice thing, like, like legitimate businesses, organizations, they, they have websites, it's important, it's a part of their, it's a part of their portfolio, it's a part of their, their business, and, and, and we can see how it's helpful. Is this the way people view websites today? Listen, you are a brontosaurus burger if you don't have a website, right? I mean, you, you, I mean, you might as well, I mean, we're, we're post-website now, right? We're, we're way past that. I mean, that's just standard operating procedure. Is prayer a novelty, a nicety, or a necessity in your life? You know, you, you, prayer might be such a novelty, you're, you're in church twice a year, and you hear a prayer, it's like, whoa, this is different. This is strange. This is, this is new. Prayer might be a nicety for you. In other words, I'm doing fine, Pastor Paul. I'm, I'm running my life. And, and when I can sprinkle a little prayer on top, that's great. When I can shoehorn some prayer into my life between appointments or on the way to work, that's, that's good. I mean, it's, don't get me wrong, Pastor Paul, it, it's a good thing, and I wish there was more of it, but, but, but fundamentally, it's, it's, it's just a bonus for me. It's seasoning for the rest of my life. Is that you? Or is prayer as much a necessity for you as the air that we breathe. And, and here's something that I, that I think is fundamentally true. It pierces my heart, and this is where I encourage you to do your own spiritual inventory. I think this is true. Our perceived need for God is directly proportional to our prayer lives. In other words, if I, if I asked you theoretically, theologically, do you need God? Oh, of course, Pastor Paul, of course we need God, right? Well, if you measured your need for God by the, by, the, by the portion of your prayer life, what would that say about what you say theologically? Would, would, would that match up with your practice? You see, we can say all that we want about how much we need this, how much we need that. But our perceived need for God is directly proportional to our prayer lives. And so... Please understand something, if this, is, if this in any way lands on any of us, and hopefully, Lord willing, it lands on all of us in a particular way, the point is not judgment, the point is not condemnation. Remember what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's an invitation. It's, it's, it's a beckoning. Jesus is saying, are you flourishing? Are, are you living the happy life? Are you blessed? Are you joyful? Are you content? And most of us busy people would probably say, not nearly so much as I would want. And Jesus, as if he's saying, let me show you the better way. And so as we embark on this study, 
pray for prayer. Pray for one another. And, and, and just a heads up, a warning label, right? When you pray that kind of prayer, guess what God will do? He will bring things into your life that will cause you to what? Pray. It's a dangerous prayer, but it's a good prayer. It's a needful prayer. All right, let's look at the second point here, the parameters of prayer. And here's I want to camp out on verses 7 and 8 um, for the rest of our time. So listen to what Jesus says. And when you pray, remember not if, but when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, when Jesus tells this group of Jews, don't pray like the Gentiles do, and why would he say that unless, what, they were praying like the Gentiles those were fighting words, right? Because that was, that was the biggest offense, the biggest insult for a Jew is to be associated with a Gentile. It's like your mom when you were growing up, when she would tell you, stop acting like so-and-so down the street who doesn't know any better. Did your mom ever say that? Am I, is my mom the only one? You, you were taught better than that, right? Us high and mighty Gilberts, we're so much better than that. Well, this is the same sort of shot across the bow. Just remember how the Gentiles prayed. Gentiles were polytheists. They each had their own gods. There was a god for everything, weather, crops, what you did for a living. But one of the hallmarks of pagan worship was to heap up empty phrases. The word literally means to babble on and on and to pile up words. So if you've ever seen a celebration after a sporting event where there's a strikeout or a home run, particularly in baseball, and what do the rest of the players do? They dogpile that poor soul, right? That pitcher, that batter who scored the winning run or the strikeout. And, and we know like guys have actually gotten physically injured through the pileup. Well, the pileup really doesn't change whether you won or lost, right? It doesn't really add anything to the celebration. Sometimes it can be hurtful. This is the same thing that Jesus is saying about piling up phrases and endless words when it comes to prayer. Because the Gentiles, as they were heaping up these words, they had all sorts of elaborate ceremonies, rituals, machinations, all in an effort to get their God's attention and in order to get their God to do what they wanted their God to do. Now, interestingly, there are actually two really good examples of pagans praying in the Bible, one in the Old Testament and one in the New. Look, look, the first one, 1 Kings 18, you're undoubtedly very familiar with. Elijah meets the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. They're going to call on their God... Baal to bring down the fire, and Elijah's going to call on his God, Yahweh, to bring down the fire. Let's see who wins. What is instructive about this is watch the way the prophets of Baal pray. Verse 26 of 1 Kings 18, and they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us, morning to noon. Did you catch that? 
But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. That was stock and barrel classic pagan praying. We also see another example of pagan praying in Acts chapter 19. We, we famously know it as the riot at Ephesus. But what we need to see that riot through is the lens of what it actually was. Okay, look, here's some selected verses from Acts 19. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, here it is, great is Artemis, that's the God, of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. In other words, this man, Paul, is causing this, this, all this ruckus, and we're calling out to you, Artemis, to prevail, to win. So do you, do you see that now? What, are the, what do each of these accounts have in common? In both instances, here, here's what I want you to know. The people wanted their God to do something for them. In other words, they had an agenda. They had a preconceived notion about what needed to happen. So for, for the prophets of Baal, it was all about power. It's like, Baal, take, take care of this, this pesky prophet of God. You know, since he's come on the scene, it's cut into our power structure. I mean, we're, we're, we're the official religion of, of Israel. And with this guy leading people astray, it's kind of cutting into our deal. And so Baal, wipe them out so that life can be restored for us the way we've had it. For the people in Ephesus, remember, they made their living on the temple of Artemis. And they were, for them, their prayer was all about money. Strike Paul and these disciples down so we can go about our business, literally. So that we can sell our sacrifices and our wares and our little tiki statues and our idols. And so for them, it was all about money. What, what's, what's the point here? These prayers were fundamentally man-centered. They were, they were not prayers, besides the fact that they were to false gods, okay? But, but beyond this, these were all about approaching God and asking what they, what he could do for them. Versus approaching God and asking God, how can we align ourselves with you? God, reveal yourself to us. God, show us your glory. Show us, make known your will to us. God, whatever it is that you're calling us to do, we want to do because we want to honor, obey, and glorify you. They were 
fundamentally about getting God to align with them versus aligning themselves with him. You see the difference? See, God was the genie in the bottle. He was an entity that was to be cajoled, bargained with, manipulated in order to do what we need you to do. They completely had domesticated their gods. Now, how is that different than how the prayers of the people of God are to be oriented? Isn't it interesting that Jesus says, don't do any of that? Because after all, look back at verse 8, he knows what you need. Listen to how Elijah prays in contrast to the way the prophets of Baal prayed. First Kings, back to 1 Kings 18. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, now listen to this prayer. You heard what we just said about the prophets of Baal, right? Hours upon hours upon hours. Here's Elijah's prayer. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Guys, do you see that? Do you see the God-centeredness of Elijah's prayer? It's, it's not long. It's clear. It's concise. And by the way, this doesn't mean that we don't ask God for things. It doesn't mean that we don't have extended times of prayer. That's not the point. The point here is that our fundamental heart and disposition as we come to God is to say, God... I'm not asking you to orient with my agenda. I'm asking you to orient me with yours. So God, show me yourself. Show me your glory. How, how do I honor you? How, do I, how is my life to, to reflect the centrality of you? You're not a little add-on. You're not a little supplement. You're not just a little something, something over to the side to sprinkle on top. You're not a nicety, God. You are the very air that we breathe. Now, you may say, well, that, that, that's, okay, that makes sense. But how do we make sense of other things that Scripture says about praying, like pray without ceasing? Because it seems like, Pastor Paul, that, that the prophets of Baal and these, the, the followers of Artemis were all kind of praying without ceasing. That's not, that's, here, here's, here's the difference. When Paul talks about praying without ceasing, he means that we have a posture and a mindset of dependence upon God. That whether we're between meetings or whether we're in the car, whether we face a temptation, whether we're struggling with some internal sin, whether we're distracted, that in that moment, we can lift up our voice to God with our eyes open and say, God, help me. God, lead me. God, strengthen me. God, direct me. We don't have to take five hours out of our day every single time because God says, I already know your heart. The most important thing is your posture towards me. Again, that, this is what Jesus is pointing us to. He says, 
your father already knows. Now, there's one last thing I just want to point out from this passage in terms of a parameter, so to speak. And it's something we're going to actually delve into in much more detail next week. But we we see just a a reference to it here. Look back in verse 8. It says, Do not be like them, for your father knows. Very interesting, this idea of God as father. Do you realize that Jesus refers to God as father no less than 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount itself? Jesus refers to God as father no less than 44 times in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, some have said that this fatherhood of God is the central motif of this sermon, and I think there could be a very good case for that. But I want us to think about the fatherhood of God in a couple of different ways. A lot of times we can think about the fatherhood of God as God is some sort of benevolent grandfather, right? He's the dude in the rocking chair. This is kind of my grandfather. And and you come and say, hey, Papaw, and he gives you 50 cents, and he says, buy an ice cream cone. And, and even 30 years ago, 50 cent don't buy no ice cream cone, right? It's like, come on, pops. We, we need a little bit more than that. But we tend to think about God as that way. God, he's the father of everyone, right? Do you realize that in Scripture, there is not one time that God the Father is used in reference to the world? There is not one time in Scripture where God the Father is used in reference to people at large. Every single time, like it's 15 times in the Old Testament, 200-something times in the New Testament, when God is referred to as Father, it is in reference specifically to the people of God. It's in reference to this idea that fundamentally our identity, while it can be is based in many things, fundamentally, our identity in prayer is one where God is our Father, where we have a familial relationship, where we have such, now understand, don't mix your metaphors because God is other things to us in prayer, okay? And we're going to talk about that next time, how God is sovereign, God is king, God is holy. That's totally true, but that's not what this metaphor wants to communicate. What this metaphor wants to communicate to us is that we have intimate access to the God of the universe. That our fundamental posture and the reason we don't gyrate, the reason we don't repetitively um, treat God as if he is a genie or, or some other entity to be manipulated and controlled is because that's not how little kids relate to their parents. Now, I don't mean when kids get older and cynical, but but think about when they are younger, okay? I didn't mean to, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, right? (laughs) It was interesting, I was watching the the coronation, and the littlest royal little dude, the, 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 you know, Kate and William's son and uh, George Charles, Archie, James, William, Andrew, whatever his name is, okay? Actually, I know it's Louie because Joe Godfrey texted me after the first service, right? <laughs> but what's interesting, of course she would, but here's a, here's a little kid, 
he really related to his parents not as if they were king and queen or whatever they are, right? But as prince and duchess or whatever, prince and princess. But he related to them primarily as parents. Now, did y'all notice Louis, all the stuff that he was doing? I mean, Louis was acting like a five-year-old. I, I thought it was awesome. He's picking his nose, okay? He's, he's, he's pressing his lips up against the car window so the paparazzi can give a good shot. He, he's pointing up in the air. He's fiddling around with his britches. He's doing all these sorts of things. And you could tell the ease of relationship that he had with his parents is that he was totally himself. He knew that he was someone who was loved. He knew that he was someone who had instant access. He knew that he was someone, all he had to do was turn around and ask. And I think this is the essence of what Jesus is pointing us to as a primary parameter of prayer. Do you know God as your father? Do you fund In fact, I understand that not everybody has a great father story that has a great father experience. And sometimes there, there can be a whole heap and help of baggage to work through to see God as perfectly heavenly father. We're going to talk more about this next week. But Jesus says, fundamentally, you come to me, you come to my father as his child. Because what would... If you had to pick a metaphor for the way that you engage with God, the way that you pray, the way that you bring your requests, what, well, what would that be? Is, is, is God more like a judge to you? Is he a harsh disciplinarian? Is he someone who's just waiting to lower the boom? Or, or maybe, it's, maybe he's just a passive, distant figure who just sort of keeps his arm's length, doesn't really get involved in your lives. But Jesus says, if you want to prioritize prayer, if you want to prioritize communion with God, here's what you need to do. You have to understand God as Father. Now, here's, here's, here's the hard truth. God is not everyone's Father. God is everybody's creator. God is everyone's sovereign. But the only way we have access and this is the point of the sermon, the only way that we have access to God as Father is through his Son, Jesus Christ. John says, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. And for some of us, what the fundamental realization has to be is, Pastor Paul, the reason maybe I don't know God or have that intimate communion with him is that I don't know him. I don't know him through his son. What does the writer of Hebrews say? Jesus is the exact representation of, of, of God. In other words, he's not a copy of God. It means that when God the Father wanted to reveal himself, when he wanted to show us who he was, who did he send? His son. And Jesus has now come to say, I am here to teach you to pray. I am here to teach you to commune with your Father. And when you fail in that, as we all invariably will, Jesus says, and I have come to lay down my life. I've lived, I'm going to die, I'm going to be resurrected so that 
you could have your sins forgiven, your conscience cleaned, and can once again approach your God, the God of the universe, as your heavenly Father. So the parameters, again, if you want to boil all of it down, what Jesus keeps coming back to again and again and again when he says, do not be like them, do not do it this way, do not do it like this, is that fundamentally the Christian religion is a priority of the heart. It's not about outward, it's not about external, it's about the work of God's spirit in each and every one of us. And so as you are taking inventory of your prayer and spiritual life this season, Jesus invites us in to say, come and know me. Come to, to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest so that you might know me and might know your heavenly Father. I ask you just to spend a minute or two reflecting on God's word this morning, preparing your hearts to come to the table. And I'm going to ask our elders to come forward, prepare to serve the elements.